Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. And uh, yeah, today I have another episode of the podcast for you guys. Um, uh, probably going to be a fairly rambly episode, as some of the recent ones. I do have a call from my buddy Jason that I am going to play. Um, and maybe we'll have more by the end of the, the kind of allotted time to build the episode for lack of a better term, which is to say it is currently, um, 9.30 ish on Monday evening, Monday, May 9th. And I am, uh, yeah, working on another episode of the podcast, which is nice. Um, always fun to get some work done. Um, but yeah, I've got kind of a number of things going on, irons in the fire, tweaks to kind of plans and expectations, I guess you might say, um, stuff I want to work on, all of that sort of stuff. So anyway, we're just going to talk about a lot of that um, and also talk about politics for a minute because it's something that is going on and I feel like talking about it. Um, which is to say that if you are the sort of person that feels called out by the sharing of uh, information, especially information that makes uh, certain political officials or people in power look bad, you should probably, you know, look inside and think about whether it's, you know, the information or the knowledge that is bad, which is to say, you know, what do you want to react to the people who are telling you about bad things or react to the people who are doing the bad things you're getting told about? Anyway, just something to consider. And then after that, we'll get into stuff that is not political. So I thought uh, as part of the sort of continuing discussion around the state of uh, reproductive rights in the United States that I would add a couple of uh, bits of detail that uh, seem to get lost sometimes in the discussion, which is to say that for those of you who don't know, one of the things that is going on is that um, uh, apparently uh uh, someone told Fox News that Justice Alito was in hiding, and that turned out to be complete bullshit. And also, there are a bunch, which is to say that um, now that source says that there's not a source that they got it from, and also that they, you know, don't really know whether it's true or not. Anyway, um, and also, there is a, an interesting point. Um, so, one of the things that has also been going on has to do with a whole number of protesters um, around the uh, house of the Kavanaugh family, as in Brett Kavanaugh, who is a Supreme Court justice who was appointed by and confirmed under uh, the most, the, the previous president. Um, anyway, and there's been a lot of discussion about the idea of peaceful protest and all of that sort of stuff, which is to say that there's a whole number of people who are doing pretty much exactly 
like what they did in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter stuff, um, which is to say talking about how, well, you know, really they should, you know, just, you know, kneel and be peaceful instead of looting. And then you go back into their timeline and find that, you know, they also have tweets about how uh, the NFL needs to ruin Colin Kaepernick's life for kneeling during the national anthem. And it's like, oh, you don't really give a shit about protest. You just, you know, want to control uh, how people communicate, right? Um, which is to say there are a couple of what I think are important details for understanding what is going on and, and in particular general level of behavior on both sides around it. So the first one we're going to do from 1994 to 2016, anti-abortion advocates killed 11 abortion workers and attempted to kill 26. From 1977 to 2015, there are more than 7,200 reported acts of violence against abortion clinics, 42 bombings, 185 arson attacks, and literally thousands of death threats, bioterrorism threats, and assaults. Um, so basically, before anybody uh, accuses um, the people on the left of uh, histrionics as a result of Supreme Court decisions, just, you know, that way you have that information in your pocket to tell them why they're an absolute fucking moron. Um, but also, here's one better, which is to say that if you look back at all of the various decisions that the Supreme Court has passed down, um, in the 90s, it, apparently it's a um, the, the specific dating, um, I didn't catch which uh, year specifically the Supreme Court decision came down, but basically the Supreme Court found that protesting outside of the residences of workers in abortion clinics was protected speech, which is to say this is basically just about as classic rules for thee and not for me as you could get for uh, people to be concerned that uh, Brett Kavanaugh has to listen to protesters outside his house, but anybody, you know, a doctor working in a Planned Parenthood clinic should definitely have to have protesters outside their house. Um, anyway, so basically, if anyone wants to be uh, shitty about that sort of thing online, this way you have some ammo to explain to them why they're being shitty and demonstrate to them the uh, severe intellectual dishonesty that is just the nature of uh, modern American conservatism. I will also add before anyone says something terribly silly like, well, you shouldn't try to push pressure a judge to make decisions the way you want them to be made, that, um, you know, one of the things that goes on with the specifics of Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice is that someone who did not have to disclose who they are um, literally paid off Brett Kavanaugh's mortgage on the house that the protesters are outside of, which is the classic, you know, protesting outside of the judge's house to get, you know, try to convince them to do what you want is bad, but buying the judge is just fine. So, you know, I thought I would add that one there just to forestall any attempts to justify bullshit. All right, now that everyone has paid the politics tax, or has uh, decided to delete live from Pelham's Wasteland from whatever service it is they use to listen to podcasts. 
Um, let's get into some other stuff. So, um, yeah, I talked a fair bit about um, the the project of the weekend, um, and I, I will reiterate that I think it was really good in a whole lot of ways. It wasn't perfect, um, but there is a there is a real value in um, the sort of imperfect that it was, I guess is the way to say it. And, and that speaks also to the sort of things I like, which as I've said before, I think there's a, a part of me that is, uh, you know, incredibly uh, attached to sort of ambitious failures, perhaps more than, um, you know, polished and less ambitious successes which is sort of why I like uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2, and also why I really like The Riddle of Steel and things like that. Anyway, um, or like any of William Gaddis's novels, right? Anyway, the, the point that I'm getting at has to do with that. It. It's, it's not... Um, whatchamacallit... whatchamacallit uh, whatchamacallit, um, essentially that um, I feel like I, I learned a whole lot from it. Um, it, you know, didn't end up with a, a product at the end of it in the sense of having as many words as I had hoped, um, but also learned a whole lot about kind of what it would take to do something like that in the future, right? And, and diagnostic tools are meaningful tools too, right? Right diagnosing productivity and, and being aware of information. And this gets back to something that I talked a little bit about last episode, the idea of, you know, good input and good process as the, the pieces that define good output. Um, and that good input bit is, is important. And in, in this case, it refers to the idea of not necessarily having kind of, um, you know, produced everything that I might have uh, hoped that it could be, but also um, the good input of, yeah, diagnostic information, right? Understanding what it would take. Um, part of it being that I think one of the things that I, I, you know, have known for a long time, but maybe had uh, a, a increased awareness of as a result of the project um, has to do with the way that certain things become more arduous over time, um, especially sort of the idea of, um, you know, creative projects working for uh, two hours on a creative project versus working for six hours on a creative project, that the, the later four hours of work tend, at least in my case, to be a lot less productive kind of for the total amount of time than the first little bit, right? That there's a, a real kind of ability to sort of um, work really kind of efficiently and, and, and productively and, and focused early on that fades over time. And part of the idea being, okay, well, so how do you deal with that, right? One way is with, you know, planning out your your productivity schedule, for lack of a better term, right? Instead of trying to do six hours of work on one day, try to do one hour of work across six days. And then when you get to the third day and realize, oh, I'm done, then you're like, oh, okay, well, so that's what it takes. Um, 
But another way is to get better at um, managing or uh, getting into um, what you call it the the idea of kind of um, self management, I guess, right back to this idea of input, right, that, you know, uh, figure out how to one of the things that has happened with me with a number of different things that I've worked on over the years is the idea of, okay, well, I get, you know, really, really focused, don't want to kind of step out of focus mode, right, but also don't want to allow intense focus mode to result in not doing the sort of things that are necessary to maintain intense focus mode, um, especially, right, the, the idea being that, you know, you really don't want to end up in a position where, like, for instance, you, you get you know, hungry or dehydrated or whatever else it is that might end up being the, the sort of specifics of uh, being unable to continue efficiently because of not kind of managing your behavior effectively, right? That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Don't do that. Um, anyway, uh, So that's one of those things that I am uh, working on, trying to figure out how to, okay, well, how do I kind of bring that sort of stuff into my process, right? That's the, the whole point. Um, anyway, and that's been, been good in a lot of ways, um, thinking about all that stuff and working on that sort of stuff and trying to kind of figure out how to make that sort of thing happen. Um, and it's also driven me to think about kind of how I spend my hobby time again, which is a sort of classic that I talk about on the podcast, um, which is to say that, you know, everybody has the same 24 hours ish in a day. I know it's not exactly 24 hours. It's a little bit off, which is why we have leap years. But the point being that everybody has about the same time in a day. It's a matter of how you spend it. And one of the sort of things that um, I don't know if everyone is in agreement, but at least is kind of my position that you can't really uh, cheat the system that, uh, you know, the, the loans come due with interest, which is to say that, you know, if your solution to there being only 24 hours in a day is, uh, you know, intense use of stimulants and things like that, whatever, however you want to describe it, um, drinking coffee all day or whatever, right? That, you know, loan comes due, which is basically to say that I don't think you actually get more from a lot of that. I do think there are some things that you can sort of get more um, by, by changing your behavior, essentially, right? That there are um, ways in which especially kind of uh, living well, I guess, for lack of a better term, is a, a virtuous cycle, right? That, you know, if you 
exercise is an obvious example for me that um, I feel like having been much more diligent about exercising regularly that, um, you know, exercise takes time to do, but that it makes the rest of the time more efficient, better, however you want to, to put it. Um, and that therefore it's, you know, it's, it's that, you know, uh, second tier, second stage productivity, second, second form, uh, indirect productivity versus direct productivity, sharpening the saw so that cutting the wood goes faster sort of thing. Right. Um, which gets into kind of absolute efficiency versus perceived efficiency. Right. Um, uh, according to potentially apocryphal sources, the uh, first Roman emperor, Augustus, was a fan of saying the phrase, make haste slowly. Make haste slowly. It's a great, uh, great phrase. Um, and I suspect there are other people who have said that one too. Um, but of course, I think the idea is to, you know, put kind of energy and effort and focus into progress, but don't let that allow you to get kind of wrapped up in um, short term solutions, cutting corners, all of that sort of stuff, right? Make haste slowly, which is to say, put the effort in, but also move deliberately. Um, and he ought to know, right? Because his empire lasted for a long time. So all I'm saying is worth considering. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't know all of what I'm going to be doing going forward. I'm, I'm tinkering a little bit with um, changing up my schedule of things, which is to say that I am... Uh, not certain that I'm going to do this, but I am uh, thinking about because I my my current schedule was sort of I mean it wasn't entirely on a whim, but it was sort of a a whim sort of thing that I kind of said, hey, this would be kind of a fun way to do things, um, and the idea being that you know you don't have to do it just right. Embrace the idea that just because you've done something one way doesn't mean that's the way that you have to keep doing it. Um, which is to say that I could, you know, pretty easily change up the the process. Um, now you don't want to get, you know, too, too often changing up the process for, for silly reasons or things like that. But you know, you don't have to stick with something just because that's the way you've done things. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm going to think about that, sleep on it, and maybe uh, tomorrow morning I will kind of come back and and say something on that uh, front. Um, similarly, I'm thinking about trying to, I think one of the things that has been going on with me lately um, has to do with kind of forms of creativity, um, which is to say that I uh, have not been playing as many sessions of RPGs. And I think that um, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that um, I think that part of what playing RPGs does for me is that it's a, you know, it's a social outlet and it's a creative outlet, 
right? That there's a, an advantage, a, a value in spending time hanging out with friends. And that there's also a value in the kind of, you know, um, creative aspects of, of storytelling in RPGs, both running and playing. Um, and that therefore, if I'm not doing that as much, right, need something else, um, which I think is part of what I kind of latched onto with the, the novella project this weekend is, you know, how uh, much fun it was to do some kind of focused creativity. Um, but part of the point being that, you know, again, just because you've done something one way doesn't mean that's the way you have to keep doing it. And so I could, you know, essentially do less time, put less time into the podcast and uh, the YouTube channel and in exchange have more time for like creative writing projects and that would that be better, right? That's sort of the question is would reorganizing the time like that be beneficial to me? That's, you know, the sort of core of the question. Um, and I don't know, I'm not sure if it would or wouldn't at present. Um, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to work on that idea and uh, try to uh, figure out exactly uh, exactly what is going to be best, right? And this, you know, opportunity cost, right? It's not enough to say that a game is uh, fun to play with your friends. It's about, you know, well, is playing this game going to be more fun than any of the other things that we might do with our time? Um, and I think that's something that is, uh, right, it's difficult to come to terms with. And it also, right, there is a, um, and I recognize in me certainly the, the kind of um, trap of getting so wrapped up in the analysis that you don't end up doing the thing, right? You know, spending so much time kind of thinking and planning, right? It's like the, the idea of the DM who has the, the world that they've built for the last 10 years. And it's kind of so precious that they can't stand to, you know, let players loose in it. And that that's, you know, not a fun game. Right. And, and in the same way, I think there's a, a trap on my part that has to do with kind of getting so uh, attached to or involved in um, the sort of, you know, secondary productivity that you don't do the primary productivity. Right. Too much time analyzing, not enough time working on just kind of production, um, which is one of those things that, you know, it's about a, a balance but simultaneously it's a right it's a complicated thing and it's an element of uh certain organizational issues too right that you know one of the, it depends on what you're involved in which is to say that you know for instance as the the various live from pelham's wasteland stuff potentially expands it seems like that means that it needs more kind of time and energy put into the kind of uh, analysis and, and secondary productivity stuff than the primary productivity stuff seems to me similar to the way that like a business expands and, you know, you went from being able to keep track of the budget in your head to needing a dedicated accountant who's going to do all of the budget tracking for 
the business because it's too large to just keep in your head, right? That sort of thing. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about all of those sorts of things and what I might want to do. And um, I don't necessarily have an answer, but um, I've been thinking about it. So anyway, that's fun. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I think I will come back in the morning because it's uh, 9.45, which means it's about 15 minutes until the uh, bedtime cutoff for me. So uh, yeah, talk to you guys in the morning, which will be, you know, momentarily for you guys, but hours for me. All right, I am back. It is Tuesday morning, just barely. Um, it's like 11.50 in the morning on Tuesday 10th, so a little bit after when I had hoped to do some stuff. I had a bit of a chaotic morning in some ways. Um, in particular, uh, me a second. Okay. Um, in particular, I, I woke up early at like 6 a.m. Um, and decided that I needed to get more sleep because even if my body thought I was rested, my brain knew better. And then woke up again at like 8.45 um, and needed to be out the door uh, at about between 9.20 and 9.30. So I had a bit of a rush to get everything done, which was one of those uh, fun things. Not a not a huge deal, but a little bit of a uh, a little bit more of a rush than often, which is, you know, again, not a huge deal, but it's one of those things that happens sometimes. Um, anyway, so the big two things that have happened today is the first off is that I may or may not have gotten another uh, dose of COVID booster, which is to say that for anyone who is uh, basically concerned about the potential of their own vulnerability to uh, the, the particular virus that is going on right now, especially on the basis of the fact that uh, the vaccine's efficacy declines over time, which is to say that your kind of peak immunity is a couple of weeks after getting the, um, the, the vaccine injection, and then it declines over time, which is to say that having gotten vaccinated at all is definitely better than not getting vaccinated, but worth getting boosted for the extra um, protection if you are at all concerned about the possibility of uh, catching the virus. Um, and worth adding that one of the things that is kind of an interesting factor is that um, the current rollout of Booster 2s is that they are, uh, Booster 2s are basically free to anyone um, who is eligible and eligibility is based on either being over 50 or, um, self-identifying as immunocompromised. And what I will say is that, um, the CDC's definition of immunocompromised is, um, perhaps not the same as your definition may be, um, which is to say that in my opinion, many of the 
or a, a huge portion of the population um, probably qualifies on some level within the various guidelines around immunocompromisation. And um, all of that is just to say that if you are um, concerned about the possibility of vulnerability to the disease, that you should take a look at the specifics online of what the CDC considers to qualify as immunocompromised, um, because the term immunocompromised um, used in kind of uh, general uh, conversation may not exactly reflect the specifics of the designation. Anyway, which is uh, just a whole kind of thing to consider if you are at all interested in that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, the other thing that has gone on is that I was, I have been working a little bit on, um, on, um, doing some stuff for my kind of YouTube channel and podcast branding and ended up so the the icon that I had been using um, was one that I found on a service called Icon Scout, um, which has lots and lots of icons um, and that I bought with um, the unlimited digital use uh, um, license and then wanted or was thinking about expanding to um, a physical use license. And basically, um, for whatever reason, the setup that they use is that you can't just kind of say you can start with a, um, whatchamacallit, uh, a physical use, but if you buy a digital use, then you have to, or at least it used to be the case that you have to, um, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, ask them what a physical license is actually going to cost. Anyway, and one of the things included in that discussion was that use as a logo is not contained under the license, which is, you know, uh, one of those things that I really should have paid more attention to um, when I was setting things up. But you know, for a guy whose brand is pedantic attention to detail, sometimes I don't do a very good job of pedantic attention to detail. So, you know, that's just kind of the nature of things. Um, yeah. Anyway, where, what was I uh, going to about that? Oh, um, what I was, was getting at has to do with um, branding. So um, basically, so I had actually already been in a little bit of talks with a, uh, a friend of mine who um, is a, a, an artist and a graphic designer and um, Basically, I uh, was like, okay, well, you know, um, what would it what would it take? What would it cost to, uh, you know, 
get a, uh, uh, some art for my, uh, YouTube channel. And specifically the original plan was art for the YouTube channel for the America of the multiverse series. Um, because I thought that would be kind of fun. Um, and now I'm no longer playing the America, the multiverse series, at least for a while. It's, uh, on hiatus for some time while I sort of figure out what I might want to do with that uh, particular concept going forward. Um, anyway, which is a whole thing, not a, not a huge deal by any means. Um, but I do need to kind of put some, some time and effort into figuring that sort of thing out. Um, yeah. And so now I'm like, okay, well, you know, um, while we're kind of, you know, having the conversation, what would it cost to do, um, some kind of graphic design and a bit of logo work in addition to, or instead of some kind of, uh, traditional artwork. And so, um, we are working on that a little bit, um, which is, yeah, I think that'll be good. Um, yeah, I'm excited to figure out what um, is sort of going to go into that, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, my idea right now is that I've been kind of doing a little bit of uh, tinkering and messing around um, on my own with a program called Inkscape. Inkscape, which is a... Um, freeware open source um, vector drawing program. And so rather than, so for those of you who don't know, um, basically there are um, multiple different kind of file formats for digital drawing stuff, right? And, and basically it's vectors and rasters. Rasters are where you save what each pixel looks like and vectors are where you save what the sort of lines that are used to draw the shapes are. Um, part of the idea being that a, a vector format image can be scaled up or down infinitely without losing resolution based on the original. Now, obviously, it you know shows precisely what you drew in the original as you scale it. So, for instance, if you end up... Um, Right. If you drew something small and then scale it up in a vector, it may need to be cleaned up so that it looks good at that size. Um, but the point being that you can scale things infinitely within that structure, whereas with a raster, what you have is pixels. And so if you if you scale down, that generally looks OK. But as you scale up, right, you're losing. Right. You you have you know, if you want something that is bigger than it started with, the program has to try to figure out how to kind of, you know, imagine what those pixels might look like. Um, the point being basically that um, that speaks to the value of vector-based drawing. Um, and in particular, that's a, a tool that is used for a number of different things, particularly a lot of modern um, 2D animation is done with vectors. Part of the idea being that once you draw a vector image once, right, because it is scalable, you can, uh, you know, use it again and again and again, right? So a lot of modern um, 
animation, a lot of modern 2D animation is built on using vectors that are, uh, you know, reusable in that way and all of that sort of stuff, which is kind of a cool thing. Um, it's part of how, you know, like uh, 2D animation for, especially like for uh, children's shows and things like that, um, you know, part of how they can kind of afford to do that is by using some of those uh, time-saving vector techniques, right? That um, rather than having to draw every frame every time you want to do something, um, it's a little bit like the way, so with, with um, more traditional kind of hand-drawn 2D animation, right? One of the things that you'll notice is that things that are going to move look a little different. And that's basically because anything that has to move is going to have to be drawn for every frame in the scene where it needs to move. But if you don't need it to move, you can just work it into the, the matte painting background that is the animation is put on top of, right? So like if you ever watch uh, Tom and Jerry or Looney Tunes, um, right? As a kid, that was one of those things that I figured out when I was pretty young that, okay, so, you know, three books on the shelf look different than the top of book on the shelf, which means that somewhere in the scene, one of the characters is going to grab the top book on the shelf because it's been drawn so that it can move instead of being, you know, painted in on the matte background that the animation is being laid, that the, the regular drawing is being laid on top of. Right. Anyway, the point being that um, vector solutions are, among other things, a way to deal with the kind of immense amount of labor that goes into traditional 2D animation, um, which is to say that uh, traditional 2D animation is a very much a labor of love and um, takes a whole lot of work to do really, really well. And as a result, if you can figure out ways to kind of save uh, time and energy when doing that, there's a, a value in that is sort of the, the argument. Um, anyway, um, but basically the point here is that Inkscape is a tool that can do, I guess I still have Clip Studio. I don't remember if Clip Studio is a, a, a license for a certain amount of time or is a permanent license and whether or not I bought a permanent license, if there is a permanent license option available. But that's what I was using for my um, Wacom tablet drawing when I did that for a couple of months. Um, back in 2019, I bought a, a small Wacom tablet and was uh, drawing and actually doing uh, raster 2D animation in um, Clip Studio, which was actually a lot of fun and a really great, um, among other things, it's a classic concept of the value of practice because, you know, you, you draw something over and over and over again and you pretty quickly end up getting uh, a lot of practice in drawing that particular thing and if you're drawing every frame now i wasn't working at a full uh frame speed i think i i think what i was doing was uh four frames a second for most things and eight frames a second for kind of action sequences where i wanted it to look smoother um, which for perspective of a traditional film is normally at 30 frames per second or I think technically 28. But the idea being that the number of frames that you have per second um, has a great deal to do with the smoothness of the action, right? That um, the, the more frames that you have per second, the less difference there is between each frame over the course of a single action, right? So this is sort of how like high-speed photography works. Um, 
but the point being that if you are drawing every frame, uh, that's uh, you know more work that you have to do, right? If you're if you're gonna draw every single frame in your um, animation, right? Four frames a second versus eight frames per second is a big deal if it takes you, you know. 10 or 20 minutes to draw each frame. And it probably took me a fair bit more than that, partly because I wasn't very good at it and did not kind of uh, put as much kind of time and practice in as I could have. But anyway, I think you get what I'm saying, that um, there's a real element of, uh, you know, spending spending lots of, of time and energy on animation as a way to get good at drawing, which is a, a fun thing. Um, Anyway, so uh, yeah, where was I going with all of that? Oh, what I was going to say was that Inkscape has, uh, Inkscape and Clip Studio actually both have uh, vectorized drawing tools. And so whichever of them I end up using seems like it um, may be possible to do a fair bit of the kind of uh, busy work, sort of blocking out the large shapes and getting something that is sort of the equivalent of a first draft and um, then handing that over to um, my artist buddy who can take a look at it and say, okay, so I can see what you're doing, but here's why it's bad. So here's what we're going to do to fix it. Um, the same way that, right, uh, you know, writing a, a draft of a novel and editing that draft of a novel are different skills. Um, and that um, perhaps that would be a way to kind of uh, use their time efficiently in particular rather than um, trying to, uh, do everything, um, myself or have them do everything, kind of, uh, share the labor a little bit, um, but in a way that is, uh, efficient and helpful for them. Um, so yeah, that is also why my, uh, my, my, image for this podcast episode and for the podcast in general, assuming that Anchor has updated everything effectively, will look a little bit different for at least a couple of days as I work on figuring that out. Because I basically went through and said, okay, well, I guess if I, you know, if I'm not going to use that old icon as a logo, then I'm going to, you know, take what I've already built. And I, I in particular, have been using Canva for laying out, um, like, you know, uh, the, the various kind of profile pictures and things like that. Um, and just basically hid all of the, the, the icon elements, um, so that they're still kind of available and especially so that the kind of positioning and scale of them is still available, but so that I can, um, tinker with, things and work on figuring out a something else that will be a useful logo um, and then have that be something that uh, becomes an element of Live from Pelham's Wasteland going forward. So anyway, that's sort of what's going on. Um, I am still not quite feeling 100%. I've been having some bad allergies. Um, a lot of post-nasal drip, um, and I think a, a portion of that, I suspect, is just kind of um, stress and, and stress as a factor in 
kind of uh, immune health and allergy response, which is to say that, you know, when you're stressed, your allergies are worse and you get sick more easily and all of that sort of stuff, which is just absolutely redonkulous and, you know, basically more evidence that the, the best argument against intelligent design isn't atheism. It's that the design wasn't very intelligent. Um, but anyway, that's a whole, I, that's getting very political. So apologies for that one, sort of. Not, not really, but you know what I mean. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's kind of what has been going on with me. Um, I've got a couple more call-ins that I received recently. So I've got a couple of call-ins from Jason that I'm going to respond to. And that may be the end of this episode, or I may talk a little bit more after those. But I think we're going to go into call-ins and responses and then either the outro or uh, a kind of, you know, a little bit more rambling, um, maybe an outro that is kind of a, a teaser for new episodes or something like that. I don't exactly know. But anyway, um, I'm going to end this recording here and we're going to listen to my buddy Jason. Hey, Arlen, Jason here. Listen to your latest show. I paused after your reading section because I got home. I probably finished tomorrow on the way to work. But I just wanted to say I'm glad you know, the reading went as well as it did, and the reading, the writing went as well as it did, and yeah, it sounds like you're positive about the outcome, and it's kind of giving you fuel to move forward and ideas to move forward, which is awesome. Congratulations. I applaud you, and I'm happy, happily living vicariously through you at the moment with, with, your, um, with, with your success and your happiness with your, your writing experiment. Um, yeah, who knows? Maybe someday when I retire, I'll catch up to you. But until then, you know, keep up the great work, my friend. And after I listen to the rest of your show, I'll call you about that probably tomorrow, though. Yeah, so my buddy Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast calling in and uh, letting me know his thoughts on some of my recent stuff, which is great. Um, yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed the, the process. Um, it is definitely one of those things that is, uh, you know, there's a, a sort of uh, direct success and meta success, right? Which is sort of what I was getting into last episode about the idea of diagnostic tools and um, ways to intake information well are useful too, right? They're not necessarily kind of direct productivity, but indirect productivity is important for overall productivity in a lot of ways. Um, so that's a, a whole thing, right? Um, anyway, all of which is to say that, yeah, I, I feel really good about the process. I uh, enjoyed it a lot. It's one of those things that I um, definitely, as I said, it is not necessarily, um, I, I figured out a lot about, um, what was I going to say? Figured out a lot about the kind of idea of executive dysfunction versus general arduousness of work. Um which is to uh, say that, um, in essence, um, as, I, as I mentioned, that um, 
figured out how to start writing even when it is difficult, which is good, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily easy to write um, anytime, which is less good. Um, so I've been, I've been thinking sort of about that, trying to figure out how to sort of work on that and approach that well and all of that sort of stuff, which to be honest, I don't know if there's a, an easy solution other than I think the big thing is plan better and spread out the time better so that you have kind of more uh energy to be able to you know write in a high energy way rather than write in a low energy way basically for lack of a better term kind of be able to you know burn up your resources a little bit um faster while writing to to sort of deal with the general level of difficulty that comes from writing well um and then, you know, have more recovery time in between instead of trying to write for six or 10 hours in one day, because that is very, very silly. Um, but I sort of knew that going in. So anyway, um, but yeah, it was it was really good. Um, I feel really good about it. Um, and it feels like one of those things that has uh, not been perfect. Uh, in particular, I think there's some sort of stress involved with uh this weekend, basically, um, and especially with kind of trying to do more things than were perhaps reasonable. Um, and uh, that is just a, a classic thing. Um, but it's worth, you know, paying attention to that for next time. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I think things uh, went pretty well. So I'm, I'm feeling really good about that and, uh, yeah, feeling like I'm very much on the right track. Hey, Arlen, I paused before the outro, but I want to say the whole who did it first, who did it best conversation is very interesting. I pretty much agree with you on that. I think it is valuable to know who did it first, like you say, and it's nice not to have to do the, the archaeology of figuring out the idea. And it's nice if people cite their sources. And I think there's value in looking at the older things. As now we're talking games specifically. Looking at the older games and reading and seeing what they did. Because there might be useful way, things that they've done in those older games that got lost in some of the updates or some of the translations to other systems that might work better for the system you're designing. So I definitely think there's value in looking at the older things. But... Just because it's the first doesn't always mean it's the best. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, and I'm going to hop in here. Jason has uh, two more calls that I haven't listened to yet. Um, but I'm going to say I, I totally agree with that as well, that I think there is um, a lot of value in going back to the sort of back to the sources, back to the originals, for lack of a better term, um, especially when you think about the way that um, not everything that happens in the process of iteration is improvement. Um, there was a whole discussion um, that I remember reading on a blog that was about the adaptation of fighters through the ages of D&D. And one of the big points that was made is that in OD&D, um, fighter levels are like basically a, a person's worth of fighting ability in general. It's not, it, uh, but the, the idea being that, you know, if you're on the, the kind of large scale combat, you get more total attacks um, and all of that sort of stuff. And so fighter levels 
um, especially in comparison to the growth of hit points, right? If you have a, a D6 hit die um, that you roll for your hit points every level up, you don't get nearly as many hit points relative to the kind of fighting ability from being a fighter versus uh, later versions of the game, especially talking about AD and D first and second edition and BX and Becky and all that sort of stuff. Um, but even on into like third and fourth and fifth, right? That as you get fighter levels up, you often get a, a bonus to hit, which is hitting more often, right? But a plus one bonus on a D20 is only a 5% difference, right? It's only... It's not a, a huge distinction between um, ability and combat versus having, you know, a plus one bonus and a big hit die means that most of what you get per level up is a, a kind of deeper pool of hit points to play with as a fighter rather than a, a you know, more aggressive sort of in, in video game terms kind of glass cannon-y um, ability as a fighter to to you know lay down the punishment more but not necessarily take as many hits more and i thought that was really interesting because they were sort of arguing that a lot of the kind of um linear fighter quadratic wizard stuff that is talked about in uh, a lot of the discussion around D basically comes from this that fighters should be getting um less in terms of hit points and a lot more in terms of being good at hitting people with swords or bows or whatever else um and have kind of all of the classes move sort of in that direction that in the same way that you know wizards get fireballs at a certain point and it's not like they lose all of those earlier spell slots when they get fireballs right that um the idea being to kind of move towards fighters having kind of um, more direct combat ability and less of a deep pool of hit points. And, and in particular, they're sort of talking about this idea in relation to um, the idea of hit point bloat, especially at higher levels and kind of arguments about how long things take how long combat takes it, particularly in different versions of games. And one of the things that they talked about was that, you know, there's a, a real kind of discussion, um, especially with kind of OSR versus new school stuff often that one of the things that the, the sort of OSR um, fans like to bring up is speed of combat. And one of the things that was discussed is, okay, so that's definitely, it is true that OSR combat is faster, but it's also true that part of the reason that OSR combat is often perceived as faster is because there is so much less um, time spent at those high levels because it takes so goddamn long to get to them because of, you know, expansion of XP costs and all of that sort of stuff, right? That if you, you have a, a, a 10th level uh, fighter in an OSR game versus a 10th level fighter in 5e, yes, fighting at 10th level takes longer in 5e than in, you know, OSE, but that, you know, a first level fight in 5e versus a 10th level fight in OSE, the first level fight in 5e is actually faster, uh, or at least the, the argument is that you can play it out faster than you can with the high level OSE play, um, partly because of the way that hit points grow with levels and the way that that provides a deeper and deeper pool of resources. Um, 
and this is back to the idea of kind of trad games are all resource management games, right? That if you have a big pool of hit points, you have more resources to, to spend um, over the course of adventuring. So anyway, I thought it was a really interesting discussion. And I think it speaks to um, going back to those things and, and thinking about kind of what might have been uh, lost in the telling, essentially, kind of similar to um, to use a, a scientific example, right? Isaac Newton um, is generally considered sort of the, the father of Newtonian physics, right? And, and, you know, extremely instrumental in our general kind of cultural understanding of mechanics, right? So Newton has laws of, of motion and thermodynamics, right? An object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays in rest, all of that sort of stuff. Um, well, a lot of that actually has to do with basically looking or one of the sort of sources, because there's a number of sources and Newton didn't take uh, perfect notes about all of his sources, but we know some of the things that he was reading. Um, and one of the things that we know that was in there is basically going back to Aristotle, which is to say that a lot of the kind of um, discussion around the idea of, of physics and mechanics um, historically in the, the medieval and Renaissance eras and leading up to Newton had to do with kind of interpretations of and study of Aristotle's theories about physics. Um, and one of the things that went on is basically that they sort of um, did all of these kind of weird things to try to justify Aristotle's understanding um, that if you actually, at least according to Newton, go back to the kind of original text of what Aristotle says are not actually really necessary. Basically, the idea being that the kind of um, Aristotelian lineage has moved away from the reality of physics in the growing in the way that all these different things have been kind of added and twisted and all of that sort of stuff. And that actually when Newton went back to Aristotle himself and, or not Aristotle himself, I mean, obviously what the writings that to, for anybody who doesn't know, the actual written material that we have that is uh, supposedly written by Aristotle is not things that were written by Aristotle. They're basically lecture notes that were recorded by his students. Aristotle himself wrote uh, a number of things, including apparently a whole number of uh, dialogues, much like Plato, his, his teacher did with Socratic dialogues. Um, but Aristotle stored his own writings in the main library and all of the lecture notes got stored in basically the annex library and the main library burned down and so the annex library stuff is all we have now um, anyway which is the whole thing but the point that i'm getting at is basically that um that was uh at least the, my under my understanding of the general understanding is that going back to the actual kind of originals of what aristotle said was really influential in isaac newton coming up with this understanding of, of mechanics, right? This idea of like, okay, if you put, you know, energy into a system, it stays in the system. It just dissipates across the system, right? That's what friction is basically. Um, but if you're not in a system, right? If, if, if your ball is the whole system and there's no friction, nothing else acting on it, the, the energy just stays in the ball, right? You throw it and it goes on forever, the reason it stops going has to do with 
friction and all of that sort of stuff. And that that actually goes back to a discussion that Aristotle had about the idea of imbuing objects with energy and the energy going away. And that's what stops motion. And that basically people had turned to that and said, oh, what Aristotle means is that, you know, you throw a ball and it flies and flies and flies and flies and flies and then runs out of energy and stops. Right. And that's obviously not true. Right. That's not how motion works. That's not how mechanics works. And Isaac Newton basically looked at that and said, oh, Aristotle knows what's going on. Everybody else is just not paying attention to the specifics of what he says, because what he means is that if nothing else happens to the ball, it's going to go, 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 go. But actually what happens is that, you know, existence is operating on the ball, essentially, basically. Um, that's my understanding of Isaac Newton's understanding of Aristotle's understanding of real world physics. Um, so fun. Anyway, have no idea exactly how accurate that is. I guess I should read a, a book on Isaac Newton or something, but you know, anyway. Of course, the opposite of that is true as well. Just because it's the newest doesn't mean it's the best. And, and the most stripped down version doesn't mean it's the best, but it's still worth looking at those for those ideas, right? So I, I think there's value in looking at everything, taking all the material in, and then making an informed decision. Sometimes that first implementation of something might be the best implementation, and the, and the later ones, just trying to put a unique spin on to make it an in-house engine, might add unneeded complexity and, and, and just drag it down, where there are other times that those you know, updated versions of, or new versions of it have done innovations and are better. So I think there's value, you know, first isn't always best and latest isn't always best. And it'd be interesting to look at certain mechanics, how they've evolved over the years and discuss that. So anyhow, great, great topic. Arlen, I'm sure you know this, but just for the record, I'm not going to stop listening to your podcast for the rambles. I was kidding around with you if I said that. And, you know, now when you, when, when you, you, you know, shed light and truth on the systems I like and prove them to be wrong and, and that hurts hurts me in my heart, that might cause me to stop listening to your podcast. Nah, probably not. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you can get rid of me. Sorry. Take care of yourself. Hope to game with you soon. Yeah, great stuff from Jason. I think I um, sort of sort of put uh, everything that I might have uh, wanted to respond uh to into the the response already um but yes i i totally agree that you know just because an implementation is newer does not make it better either right that there's plenty of right it goes back to um it was dennis dennis houston in my uh sophomore year uh english class that I took with him, who basically started with no one will ever write a war epic as good as what Homer wrote. Part of the point being that, you know, unlike other fields, right, art creation is not necessarily entirely iterative, right? That there is a, an iterative element to it, but there's also an element of kind of unapproachable genius for lack of a better term, or, or these kind of, these kind of grand uh pieces that fit into the the sort of intellectual history and, and art history of all of these things and therefore um right part of the point has to do 
with the way in which those, um, yeah, all of that stuff is uh, sort of impossible to recapture in some ways, right? Could you could you write something as good as what Homer wrote? Probably not. You know, maybe, maybe if you worked really hard at it and you got really, really lucky, you could do so, but unlikely, right? That's a, you know, it's a gamble of long odds as um, uh, Jeffrey Rush's character, uh, Barbosa, Hector Barbosa in um, one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies says. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's a whole fun thing. Um, yeah, so what was I, uh, gonna talk about? Oh, but yes, yes, basically, I totally agree that the, you know, the most recent implementation is not necessarily the best either. Um, and, and like I said, I think there's a real value in going back to sort of the source, especially as, um, kind of, you know, the, the iterative developments start to influence the iterative development itself which is a sort of thing that I think I've talked about a couple of times on here, but the idea that what D&D 5th edition is most concerned with emulating in terms of fiction is other D&D fiction, basically, right? That that's, you know, that's sort of what type of fiction it exists to uh, emulate, which is kind of a, a weird thing in a lot of ways, um, but also worth kind of analyzing directly, right? That, you know, think about, okay, well, what, what does that mean, right? What is, what does it mean if, you know, you have a, a game that is designed to emulate earlier games, right? Isn't that kind of an odd thing? but also maybe a, a useful thing to be aware of and a, a sort of thought about how that actually works, right? Um, anyway, so that's a, a whole fun thing. Um, but yeah, that's kind of uh, what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, so anyway, and I'm, I'm glad that you are uh, still with me, despite the, um, rambles and all of that. Um, you know, it's nice to have, uh, stalwart companions on the wanderings, um, and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, um, you know, it's a whole fun thing. And, um, I guess I'm just gonna, yeah, I think that I am going to call this one right about here and come back with the outro, but I do think I am going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I am going to be coming up with soon in the outro, so stay tuned for that. All right, so I am going to close this one off here, but I have a couple of things I've been thinking about a lot recently that I would like to talk about in the future. Um, in particular, I've been thinking a lot about talking a bit more um, about kind of mental health stuff. And uh, I have, have talked historically a fair bit about lots of different 
mental health related things. Um, but in particular, that I would like to talk not just about mental health kind of in, uh, in, in a vacuum, essentially mental health and, and depression, but especially kind of mental health and depression and anxiety and kind of autism, um, which is to say for those of you who um, don't know, when I was seven, 17, um, my mom took me to a, a therapist to um, talk about the, the possibility of uh, Asperger's, which is now uh, sort of grouped as ASD is my understanding, which is to say that it's not um, just Asperger's. ASD stands for Autism Spectrum Disorder, which is um, by itself kind of silly because one of the sort of core points is that, uh, at least in my case, autism is not difficult. Autism is difficult because of the neurotypicals, not because of autism itself. Um, anyway, so a little bit of a... Uh, uh, preview for you all right there. Um, but anyway, I would like to talk a little bit more about that and talk a little bit about kind of um, things that I recognize sort of sort of like a like a personal essay kind of concept, right? Creative nonfiction. Um, in particular, I was talking with my little sister about um, the Shakespeare play Hamlet. And um, Hamlet, it seems to me, has some really interesting discussion of uh, neurodivergence and mental health issues kind of hidden away in there in ways that are perhaps not talked about as much or maybe are talked about as much and I'm just not as aware of that, um, which would be fine too. Um, so anyway, I think it would be interesting to do something on that front. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I am, I guess, so I think this episode is going to come out on, uh, whatchamacallit, the uh, Thursday, which will be the 12th of May, right? Yes, Thursday, the 12th of May, and then probably not put out another episode over the weekend, although perhaps depending. And then what I'm going to do is I, I sort of had this kind of uh, scheduled draft that I drew up. Um, and I think that's going to be, um, I'm going to try to move towards that, which is um, podcast on Monday morning and on Thursday morning at about 11 a.m. And then YouTube channel on Tuesday morning and Friday morning also at about 11 a.m., um, depending on how my kind of productivity schedule works out and then not have, cause that's, so basically what I've been doing is podcast Tuesday, Thursday, YouTube, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, and that shifting those things around a little bit, I think will be good. Um, in particular doing the podcast on Monday. Um, it's often easier for me to record the podcast without as much prep. And that means that if I don't do anything podcast or YouTube related over the weekend, I can do something Monday morning and still generally release on time Monday at 11 a.m. Um, and then also kind of four things a week instead of five things a week, right? Um, having Wednesdays with no plans to release something, at least at present, 
um, kind of allows for a little more sort of time flexibility um, and also has an extra kind of spot if I want to, um, for instance, I've done a number of YouTube projects where I've sort of had a, like a two-part thing. And so I could do that Tuesday and Wednesday releases and have that be, you know, two days in a row. Um, seems like that is uh, a thing that would be good. Um, and yeah, and also I need to spend some time uh, learning how to use Inkscape and putting some time in apparently, um, which is, I probably don't actually need to do that much in terms of need need, um, which is to say that I think I could leave things as my, um, live from Pelham's Wasteland text with no icon for a while, but, um, I would like to have a, a logo icon sort of thing on there. So I guess I will probably do some work on that um anyway uh yeah i hope everyone has enjoyed hope everyone is doing well staying safe staying healthy and having lots of fun gaming if you call in to the podcast basically between now and when this episode releases um, i will probably not add your calls to this episode um so right now it is tuesday a little afternoon um, so if you call in on Wednesday or Thursday morning, um, you probably won't hear your calls on this episode, but rest assured that those calls will go into another episode at some point, um, because I'm trying to do a better job of keeping track of the calls that I get and responding to them rather than letting them build up for months and months and having to kind of go back into the archives and try to figure out where the, the start of unresponded to calls are. Um, so anyway, that's a, a whole thing. Um, but anyway, um, and that is what happened with the 3.33 episodes. So anyway, try and to do better about, uh, the planning and, you know, put calls into episodes when I get them, if not into kind of the next episode, that's kind of going to come out into a, like a, something called call in draft on anchor that I can just, you know, keep things keep stay aware of things that way but anyway all of that is to say i am uh, clearly getting worn out um i think it is fair to say that i'm getting a little bit of uh vaccine response probably i can feel a little bit of of soreness in my left shoulder and down my kind of left upper arm and a little bit on kind of that side of my chest um just a bit not not horrible by any means and definitely much better than uh, getting the virus, but um, a tiny bit. So I think I'm going to go lie down and uh, sleep or read or something totally unproductive, but uh, fun to do anyway. So yeah, that is going to be that for this episode. Um, yeah, I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.